Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. So one of the things that separates us from all the other animals is that we're storytelling creatures. We love stories. We use stories to create a sense of national identity. We use stories to shape the ethics of our children. And we use story to make sense of our lives, how we understand ourselves, understand our place. And as our story goes on, we often reinterpret past chapters of our lives. And you see this happen when you're younger and right at the end of a bad chapter where your high school sweetheart dumps you. You tell the story and interpret it a certain way, but then maybe 10 years later when you're married to the love of your life, you look back and that chapter all of a sudden is reinterpreted. And you tell that story in a different way. But see, we also use story, I think, to interpret our current moment. Writing future chapters over and over again in our mind to make sense of the here and now. And I think this is especially true in those moments of conflict, those disparaging pits in our life's narrative. Those times when you've lost a job, find yourself caught in the midst of the downward spiral of addiction, that you get word of a hopeless prognosis about a loved one. Children are rebelling, or whatever it might be. And when we're in the midst of those moments, the pessimists among us will write future chapters in their mind in which everything falls apart. There's no climax. There's no resolution. There's no narrative arc. The story just goes down from there. Of course, the optimists will often narrate a different story to themselves, writing future chapters with a grand resolution, a sharp arc that sends the story back in an upward trajectory. But see, how we construct those future chapters of our story in our mind will deeply impact how we understand the current chapter we find ourselves in. But the reality is, is that even the greatest optimist among us can be crushed and that hopeful resolution that you kept writing in your mind, that, that upward trajectory seems like it's happening, and then all of a sudden, your story spirals back downward. And this is where we find Joseph at this moment in his story. Right after it had seemed that things might be coming together, that those dreams that he had might be coming to fruition, 
He finds himself thrown back in prison. But interestingly, Joseph doesn't call it prison. He calls it a pit. Hearkening back to that earlier moment in his story. Showing that Joseph is connecting this to the previous moment. Part of this nightmarish cycle that keeps happening. And the challenge is, with this particular story that we have of Joseph's life, that we do need to understand this moment in light of Joseph's broader story. And actually, we need to understand that within the grander story of God's redemptive narrative. But on the other hand, when we do that, I think we often miss the reality of that moment. We miss the opportunity to see how that particular instance could speak to moments that we find ourselves within. And so I want to just take some time just kind of recapping this story. First, to understand it in the current moment. And then connect it to the broader story. Because I think both speak in profound ways to the current chapters that we find ourselves within our lives. Starts in, in 40 and 1 through 8. The first words are sometime after this, which indicates that there was a significant amount of time since Joseph was thrown back into the pit. It wasn't just a few days after. It says the Pharaoh's baker and cupbearer were thrown in prison for offense. And see, the baker and cupbearer at that time were positions of significance. I mean, not as much like today. I mean, a baker is an honorable job, especially if you're good at it. Everybody likes a good crusty bread, right? You know, a little bit of pastry. But it ain't going to make you a rock star. It ain't going to make you a household name. I mean, if you've got a show on Food Network, maybe, but that's a whole different story. And, and let's be honest, like, if you want to be a cupbearer when you grow up, you're going to really struggle to find a job. <laughs> but in that time, there were positions of great significance because they had direct audience with Pharaoh. Very few had that. Many couldn't even look upon him. They had direct access to the ruler of the most powerful kingdom in the world, a man whom the people believed to be God. It says that Joseph was placed with them, subtly indicating that God's favor was still with Joseph. But you find them that they were distraught because of dreams that they both had on the same night. And see, the thing is, is with this particular chapter, a lot of people like to focus on dreams and dream interpretation. Some will look at it and point out and laugh and say, look at these silly ancient people. They always believe that dreams have meaning. Or on the other hand, people will look at it and see, 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 our dreams have meaning and come from God and we should be interpreting our dreams. But the reality is, is that in the ancient Near East, they thought most dreams were just, you know, dreams. So if you're like a blue-collar Egyptian and you have a dream in the middle of the night that you show up at the pyramid to make bricks and realize that you didn't put your clothes on, you didn't immediately think that that meant something. Like, you didn't wake up and be like, oh, i got to find somebody to interpret this naked dream. Like, you just thought it was a dream. But see, they had specific things that they would look for in dreams to indicate that it might be from the gods. 
that it might have meaning. And one of the most important things that they would look for is that an individual either had multiple dreams or multiple people had dreams that resembled each other, especially with regard to numbers. And so we have here these two significant men waking up in a cell together, and most likely they shared their dreams. And waking up, he's like, yo, I just had the weirdest dream. I was out of prison, there's this vine, three branches, grapes. The other guy's like, what? <laughs> I had a similar dream. There's baskets, and there's three of them, though. And that would have sent red flags in their mind that, wait, this is, this probably means something. And they were downcast because in the ancient Near East, not everyone could interpret dreams. So they knew their dreams meant something, but there was no licensed dream interpreter to tell them what that meant. And during that time, those who were certified dream interpreters, they had specific practices, specific customs in order to, to divine what the dream meant. Whenever I was doing research on this, um, one, one example was they would take hair from an animal and then they would put it in a bowl and mix it with the innards of that animal. And somehow that helped them interpret the dream. <laughs> I don't know, maybe it worked. I ain't going to try it, but you know. But see, the thing is, is this, this, this isn't, what's important in this is not that it helps us develop some type of doctrine on dream interpretation. But instead, that what Joseph says next would have been shockingly countercultural. We ask, doesn't interpretations belong to God? A rhetorical question saying only God can interpret dreams. Saying, no, I'm not a dream interpreter. I don't have the, the gift of dream interpretation. But instead, only God can do that. And shockingly, right after that, he says, so tell me. <laughs> the first point is that in this, we see that even in the pit, Joseph still believed, still held hope that God was with him. He still trusted Yahweh. I mean, that's a bold move. Say, God can only do that. Now tell me the dream, not knowing what the dreams were, not knowing if those dreams actually had an interpretation, and not knowing if he would have the interpretation for those dreams. And then the story goes on in 9 through 18. And the cupbearer explains his dream to Joseph first. You have a vine, three branches, clusters of grapes, squeezes them into Pharaoh's cup. Joseph tells him that that means that in three days, Pharaoh is going to lift up the cupbearer's head, signifying that Pharaoh was going to pardon him, restore him to the place that he once had. And after Joseph gives his interpretation, he asks the cupbearer to remember him before Pharaoh. Showing us that even though Joseph held out hope that God was still with him, that didn't mean that he wasn't frantically trying to get out of the pit. Seeking an opportunity to get out. And then you got the poor baker, who's a little bit more reluctant. Which I understand that. I mean... Birds eating baskets of bread off your head. It's kind of like a bad scene from Hitchcock's The Birds. 
But you know, he's emboldened. He saw the interpretation of, of the cupbearer. So then he decides to share his Hitchcock-esque nightmare. And I really feel bad for the dude. Because you think about it, like he shared it. And then Joseph begins to explain his dream exactly as he explained the cupbearer's dream. He said, on the third day, Pharaoh will lift up your head. And probably at that moment, the baker's like, whoo, <laughs> all right, all right, cool, cool. You know, like winking at the cupbearer, like this is good. And then Joseph continues, he'll lift up your head and hang you from a tree and then birds are going to eat your flesh. Like it's kind of a letdown. <laughs> so I do feel bad for the guy. But after that, if you notice, unlike the cupbearer, Joseph doesn't ask him to remember him before Pharaoh. Showing us that even though Joseph desperately wanted out of the pit, Joseph's not stupid. Because <laughs> usually if you know someone's about to be killed, you don't ask them to put a good word in for you beforehand. But see, what's most important is what Joseph says to the cupbearer in 14 through 15. In 15, he says, For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. What's interesting is this is the first instance in which Joseph interprets his own story. And he interprets it as a horrible injustice. It's a terrible thing. And see, even though later on we have the more famous interpretation of Joseph, further on down the story, where he looks at these moments and says, what you meant for evil, God intended for good. And even though that later interpretation of, of his current situation, situation was certainly true, that, that God would use all of this for immense good, Joseph's interpretation at the moment, not having the future chapters written yet, was also true. And I think sometimes when we're in a pit, I think sometimes as Christians, we create a false dichotomy. In which we, we, we say that because God will work things for good, that we need to be okay with the situation that we're in. Saying to ourselves or saying to others, see, God will use this for good, so just receive it as a gift. No. Just because God works all things for the good does not mean that all things are good. See, the reality is, is that we can hold fast and hope knowing God is victorious and will make all things right while also lamenting the terrors of injustice, of evil, suffering, pain, and loss. See, when we're in the pit, there is a need for a steadfast hope, a hope that is drawn from the fact that we do know the concluding chapters of the story, but there is also a place for holy lament toward the brokenness and darkness 
that often surround us while still in the pit. And in 14, he makes the plea to the cupbearer. Please remember me when you enter the courts of Pharaoh. And he asks him to show him kindness. See, this word kindness is a translation of a very, very important Hebrew word, hased. Said means loving favor, faithfulness, steadfast love. His said is used in connection to God's covenant with his people. God promised his said to Abraham and his offsprings. He showed special his said to Isaac and Jacob. And in this description, we see Joseph grasping for a little bit of his said. Needing a little his said to be shown towards him. And then the story closes with Joseph's interpretations coming true. And then the narrator finishes the story with this piercing statement. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. See, before mentally jumping to the next chapters and the rest of the story to see this moment in a different light, we need to recognize the reality at that point. A reality that the next few verses says was Joseph spending two years in the pit, forgotten. I mean, put yourself in Joseph's shoes. You imagine those first few days after word got out that the cupbearer was restored, every footstep down the hall, every time the prison cell door was opening and a guard was coming in, his heart must have leapt with anticipation. I'm getting let out. <laughs> he remembered me. And then slowly after the days go on, that feeling had to come in where he begins to realize as the cupbearer forgot him, that there was no said. Then as days became months, months became years, I can only imagine that there had to have been that sinking feeling creeping in that not only the cupbearer forgot him, but God had as well. I mean, we know that God hadn't forgot him and that God was with him all along. But the reality is that even though we know in our mind, we know that God will never leave us nor forsake us, there still can be times in the pit when it sure as heck doesn't feel that way. We need to be able to re hold on to, memorize, and recite to us that beautiful psalm of David in Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. But the reality is, is that same David is the one who wrote continuously, My God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? Have you forgotten your child? I'm reminded of right after Mother Teresa's death. 
As they were compiling her letters and her journals, there was shock. They found that this great saint, while she was in the midst of the pit of surrounding poverty and disease, she also found herself in a similar tight place. I'll read you a portion of one of her letters to to her spiritual director. She wrote, in the darkness, I call, I cling, I want, and there is no answer. Where I try to raise my thoughts to heaven, there is such convicting emptiness that those very thoughts return like like sharp knives and hurt my very soul. Love the word, it brings nothing. I'm I'm told God lives in me, and yet the reality of darkness and coldness and emptiness is so great that nothing touches my soul. See, sometimes in the pit, it's so deep, and it's so dark that it's hard to see God's presence with you. You can at times be overwhelmed with the crushing feeling that he has forgotten you, and as I said, is no longer directed towards you. But we know the story goes on. God had not forgotten Joseph. He had not recanted his covenant it had said towards Joseph. But what's interesting is the momentary semblance of God's abandonment was actually derived from his unceasing has said. So God hadn't forgotten Joseph, but he also hadn't forgotten the promises that he had made to Joseph's great grandpap. I mean, you know most of you where the story goes from here, but could you imagine if the cupbearer hadn't forgotten him? If two days later, Joseph was released. And most likely, after two years, Joseph would have been long gone from Egypt. Nowhere around when Pharaoh had his ominous dreams. And I want you to know that I'm I'm not saying that, see, eventually everything will work out. And you'll be able to look back and see how your suffering has has changed the world or liberated many. I mean, that was was Joseph's story. But sometimes, I'll be honest with you, sometimes we don't get out the pit until glory. Sometimes, even at the end of our life, we can look back at moments of pits in our lives and still not be able to perceive a reason or a purpose behind it. See, the point is that when we're in the pit and see no release, we don't muster up hope by repeatedly singing the five stair t- steps Motown hit, Ooh Child. You know, Ooh Child, things are going to get easier. All right, y'all, I can't sing, but listen, you know what I'm talking about. You see what I'm saying here, right? No. What I'm saying is that instead, we repeatedly sing the refrain from the beautifully rhythmic Psalm 136. We're after each line describing the nature of God. Describing his redemptive activity. It repeats over and over again the refrain. His steadfast love endures forever. Literally, his said endures forever. Because even when it feels 
as if God has forgotten you, you can still say his said, his steadfast love, his faithfulness endures forever. And thanks be to God that God's loving faithfulness is not dependent on our momentary perception of it. And as I said, this story is part of Joseph's broader story. But in reality, Joseph's story is in some ways a proto-picture, a precursor to Israel's story, who continually found themselves in a pit, sometimes because it's their own fault and sometimes not, crying out to God that he would remember them, that he would show them the said that he had shown their fathers. But Israel's story is ultimately assumed and fulfilled by Christ. And when you look at this chapter in Joseph's story, I think there's many glimmers, some of them very faint pictures that should draw our attention out of Joseph's story and into the grander story, the story that gives us true assurance that God will not forget us. This should draw our gaze away from Joseph and to the reality of Christ. I mean, first, you look at Joseph. And it should call to mind that Christ was the one who was truly falsely imprisoned, condemned, though he had done no wrong. But that through in Christ, it was not to, to save from starvation a few thousand people. But through the injustice perpetrated against him, that the entire world would receive grace upon grace. And then a multitude would be delivered from a death that is far worse than famine and starvation. But also, I find that the baker and the cupbearer also kind of brings to mind Christ. I mean, one, there's the whole bread and wine thing, right? But also, just like both the baker and the cupbearer, Christ was lifted up. Like the baker, Christ was lifted up and hung from a tree. His body broken so that we may receive forgiveness. And like the cupbearer, Christ was raised. He was lifted up from the dead three days later. And then he rose to return to his previous position in the courts of the Most High God. But also, there's that dramatic scene in which in desperation, Joseph pleads with the cupbearer, please remember me. You enter into the courts of Pharaoh, which has resounding echoes in that climax to the great story in which in, on, in the pit of the cross, the one thief looks over to Christ and pleads, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And unlike the cupbearer, Jesus will never forget. And he is continually intercessing on our behalf at the right hand of the Father. Remember the first time I ever attended an Easter tenebrae service. 
at St. Vincent Basilica. It's a beautiful service as they read through the narrative of the crucifixion. Every por- after reading each portion of the story, they would put out a candle. Until at the very end, you're in darkness. And it closes by continually, over and over and over again, singing the words of that thief, getting more silent as you go along. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And I remember singing that and over and over again, and then all of a sudden realizing that I'm not just repeating the words of this thief, these are my words. Like that thief and like Joseph, these words are my only hope. That he would remember me. And I remember singing it over and over again. And it's just piercing in to the point that I couldn't speak those words anymore. But the reality is, is we cry out with certainty, knowing that the Lord has remembered us is with us and will never forsake us. And his has said, endures forever. Think of the promise made through the prophet Isaiah. We're in the midst of an impending pit. Isaiah writes, but Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. To which God responds, can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. See, when it feels like the Lord has forgotten you, when the pit is so deep and dark that you cannot see beyond the current hell you are in, when it seems that there is no curve coming to the trajectory of your narrative, and you are left pleading, The risen Lord remember you. All one needs is to look at the palms of his hands. Not to see a name, but to see the wounds. Showing out his hands. Reminding us, I am, I did not forget you. And I will never forget you. I don't know where you are in your story. Whether you're at an apex, a deep pit or somewhere in between. Nevertheless, we must all be reminded that we can be certain as we gaze upon our crucified and glorified Messiah and plead, Jesus, remember me, that he will never forget you, nor I. And his has said is unceasing. Even if at the moment you can't perceive his presence, Sense his steadfast love, or at this point, find yourself in the midst of a prolonged recurring pit causing you to begin to think that he might have forgotten you. The fact remains that he will never leave you nor forsake you, and his has said, will endure forever. Not because you or I can currently perceive it, but because he has promised it and achieved it, and that promise has been sealed in his most precious blood stamped upon his palms by those barbaric nails driven into his hands. Thanks be to God. Be at last, they took your-